3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, the rain has finally stopped falling and the skies are brightening as we bring yet another ghastly week of lockdown to a close. There's some reasons to be cheerful this morning. First of all, I can actually see the Tower of London. It's definitely still there. Uh, I heard a story last night on James Wells' show uh, that one of the ravens has died. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, uh, but I'm pretty sure we'll find out uh, if it means anything bad. Somebody will tell us. I think they always have to have six at any given time to ensure that the world continues to be a reasonably decent place. But after some pretty dreadful statistics since the weekend, we're now told that the R rate has retreated, supposedly, to below one. And COVID cases are actually falling across most of England. Public Health England say weekly cases have come down and infections are declining in all age groups except for the over 80s. Now, that's where almost 90% of deaths actually occur. This, they say, is due to the lockdown. Well they would say that wouldn't they But only a few days ago They were telling us that we wouldn't see the benefit of the lockdown For at least another two weeks So which is it? Can't be both can it? This morning we'll take stock of the situation with former Sun Political Editor George Pascoe Watson. Earlier this week, of course, I asked when we could start to see a roadmap for escape from this draconian economic strangulation and stagnation that businesses are having to suffer. Surely now we must demand it even more. And as more and more people are vaccinated, we need more and more businesses to be able to actually do business don't we? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Mo on Sunday columnist Dan Hodges. He's been waging a battle on social media against those he sees as lockdown sceptics, the likes of Toby Young, Peter Hitchens and even our own Julia Hartley Brewer. I'll be asking him why, as a journalist, he is so reluctant to question the government narrative and why he attacks those of us who do we might also be in the process of setting up a head-to-head between he and Peter Hitchens right here on Talk Radio. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, Lisa Francesca Nand is going to be here with an update on all the travel restrictions announced yesterday by Transport Secretary Grant Shapps and precisely what you have to do if you're flying back into the UK from foreign parts. And also, just why it's taken this long for the government to finally limit people's ability to fly into Britain from all over the world. 0344 499 1000 Because it's Friday, we've got the Donna Harvey reporting in from California and it's Perrier Awards time as well an homage to my brilliance in broadcasting in the company of producer Marta Amalagov You're listening to me, Mike Graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet It is, of course, Talk Radio Mid morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Now, it's been one hell of a week, hasn't it? I mean, it's been one hell of a month, really, so far. January, uh, we're still only really halfway through. But it feels like, you know, the Ides of March would be a welcome relief. Honestly. It's been really feeling like we've been battered from pillar to post. We've been uh, sort of ground down by these terrible death figures that have been coming out. 1,500 a day, 1,200 a day, 1,000 a day. Um, You know, we've been talking about the lockdown and when we can possibly think of a way out of it. Uh, Let's talk now to George Pascoe Watson, of course, chairman of Portland Communications, former political editor uh, of The Sun. George, a very good morning to you. Happy New Year. Uh, Good morning to you, Mike. (laughs) Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It's been one heck of a uh, January so far, hasn't it? I mean, what's going to happen next?
1: Well, if we could uh, predict the future, we would have been able to predict that January was going to be, and we're only halfway through it, this extraordinary month. And of course, that's not even looking at the the events uh, in Washington with uh, the end of the Trump administration Mm. uh, descending in the way that it has. I think what's going to happen next is this nation is going to be focused very hard on getting vaccinated So that, as you say, we can begin to move out of uh, this terrible lockdown, which is paralyzing business, paralyzing life uh, and beginning to have the impact that we've always feared on the economy.
3: Yes. I mean, I'm hopeful that at some point or other the Rubicon is crossed where enough people have either been infected and or vaccinated uh, with this ghastly thing uh, so that we can at least make some kind of roadmap. I was saying this earlier in the week uh, and Harry Cole in the Sun uh, was reporting yesterday um, that Steve Baker is now putting a bit of pressure on the government and saying look if you don't come up with a plan you know there might be problems with your leadership and there might be a challenge. Yes although I
1: note this morning that Steve Baker did a pretty quick uh, climb down from his position. In fact, the Daily Mail called it the, the, the shortest coup in history two <laughs> hours later to put out a statement saying uh, what we really need to do is to get behind Boris Johnson. I mean, I think you're going to get people like Steve who are always going to be pushing and we need people like your radio station, like Steve and others pushing the government. The government needs to be pushed the whole time um, because the reality is it's very easy if you're a government minister to focus on the immediate crisis in front of you and lose sight of the medium and how we're going to get out of it but really certainly the business world that I operate in and 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 many of the people listening this morning We all need to know that there's hope for the future and that there's a proper plan. And I I know that ministers are working on that, but the tendency is to focus on the here and now.
3: Yes, well, well, I'll I'll take your uh, Steve Baker and I'll raise you Graham Brady, who last night on Talk Radio said that, you know, some of his constituents in Manchester um, have been basically under lockdown for the best part of the last eight or nine months. And it's just not sustainable in terms of businesses. I mean, you're in the business world. Uh, you you tend to talk to the bigger businesses. But I talk to lots of friends of mine in smaller businesses who are just finding it impossible. And let's face it, these are not people um, who are simply trying to make money for themselves, as Julie Hartley Brewer pointed out. They are the backbone of the economy. Small business in this country provides so much money to the exchequer. Hospitality, for example, uh, which we talk about an awful lot, you know, provides billions and billions of pounds in revenue to the, to the Chancellor's uh, Treasury. Um, but they're not making any money at all. I was over in Borough Market the other day. It was deserted. You know, it's one of the last bastions of, 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 of places that can be still open because it is very well run and it is a food market. But, you know, I spoke to some of the traders over there and they're, they're optimistic, believe it or not, because they believe they can, they can get through it. But it's really tough
1: are really tough doesn't really do it justice i mean it is it is critical it is catastrophic for many businesses and even the bigger businesses uh, that i tend to advise are having to make major major changes and when we talk about business we forget that it's real human beings mm. who are business so if you're in danger of losing your job through no fault of your own you have anxiety about that how are you going to feed your your family, uh, keep your kids in clothes. You, if, you, if you've lost your job, how are you going to get back into the job world? So the anxiety is there the whole time for people, um, people who have made a massive punt, a big bet and, and sunk their savings into starting a business. You know, it has a real impact on people and the supply chain. If the big guys fall over, then the supply chain, the small guys who support the big guys, they all fall over. And that is a real, real uh it's a day-to-day event uh, and we're going to find the numbers uh, are going to come through pretty soon and of course you've got a chancellor who in six weeks time has to conjure up some sort of an amazing uh, impossible budget where in in some way he uh, demonstrates to the global money markets that Britain has a plan which is credible to pay down its public debt uh, because if he doesn't then the cost of our borrowing will go up and that will have an impact on all of us who, who have mortgages and businesses who have got loans out. Um, he has to find a way of making sure that Conservative supporters and Conservative MPs are, are not upset because he's not raising taxes. How does he do it? It's, in, it's an impossible trick.
3: Mm. It really is. And I mean, a great quote here this morning from Dr. John Lee, um, who is a, a medical expert now retired. He says no country ever improved its health care by making itself poorer. And last night, for example, I watched on Channel 4 News with some alarm about the millions of people who are not getting treatment uh, for various ailments that they should have got treatment for. Some people now waiting over a year um, because the NHS has kind of fallen into this paralysis uh, of doing anything other than treating COVID
1: patients. And you can see from a clinician's perspective why they have to make a priority. Uh, and that's what's happened. But the consequences for, you know, there's a tragic story of a, a woman uh, over the weekend interviewed about her, her cancer treatment uh, to stop her going into, um, I think, stage four cancer, mm. cancelled. Uh, sure, now they've, they've got a new appointment for her, which is great news down in Kent. But this is happening thousands and thousands of times up and down the nation. And uh, the effect of that is going to be felt in months and years to come and many, many years to come, we don't know. And that's the impact on the health service. You need to continue to generate wealth to pay for the hospitals, the drugs, the uh, equipment, uh, the clinicians, the training. We can't follow. We need to continue mm. to generate money.
3: Also, can we not also use this as an opportunity to really examine what is going on inside the NHS? You know, a lot of people talk about the NHS as if it's a kind of religion, church uh, that cannot be in any way uh, besmirched by anyone critical of it. But clearly, in terms of management, in terms of the way the thing is structured, it's completely and utterly uh, ineffective in an awful lot of areas.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, people uh, have been thinking about this for very many years. you The problem here, Mike, is that no single politician can ever stand up and question the efficiency of the NHS without being uh, forced into a humiliating apology and almost lose their job. It is absolutely fundamental to understand that the NHS and the people in the NHS do their absolutely level best on a daily basis. But the system is basically too big to contain and control the, 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 the rising costs uh, of of uh, medicines, the the incredible things which are cap- we're capable of doing now, keeping people living a lot longer than we ever could before, all of which is good news, but it comes with a price tag, uh, and that has to be. And there are better ways we think of running health systems, but the problem here in politics is that nobody can gr- grasp that nettle because there's no permission to say anything other than the NHS is faultless. Well, yeah. the NHS is doing its absolute best. Let's be quite clear about that but it could be free to do better.
3: Yes. Well, it could be free to do a lot better. I mean, I was listening to uh, a podcast last night uh, that was put out uh, as a result of of a sort of investigation into the NHS and talking to various clinicians and doctors and and, and people in management in the NHS. And they concluded in this podcast, bizarrely, uh, which I could have told them before they'd even talked to anyone, that the word overwhelmed, which is used all the time uh, by people in the NHS, we must stop the NHS from being overwhelmed, is not a very scientific description. Well, of course it's not, because it's subjective the word overwhelmed really doesn't mean anything you know the fact that every single winter we are told that the nhs is on its last legs and its needs needs serious amounts of money you know the idea that the nhs doesn't have enough money is also a nonsense it hasn't been starved of funds it hasn't been starved of people you know it's got lo- large numbers of people who are off sick or off self-isolating because of the situation we are in i think it's time they, they pull their socks up quite frankly
1: well, there's no doubt, you know, under Theresa May, another £20 billion uh, a year went into the NHS, a huge sum of money, and there's a never-ending uh, demand for money uh, in, in the health service. And, and that's where we're always going to be. What, what people really want in the, in the NHS, I think, is clarity of efficiency, how they spend the money, what they can do with it, uh, and, and if possible, to allow people who can afford to go private, maybe a tax break so that they can take their business elsewhere uh, and free up the nhs capacity but I, I think that this debate is not a debate mike because as soon as you get into this territory it's only it's only guys like you who have the the courage to, to tackle it um yeah, but why is that it, why should that be
3: right why should people be frightened i mean julia was talking this morning about people that she knows and she talks to in the health service because her father uh, was in it i think or her mother was in it um one of the two but you know they're actually physically harassed they're actually kind of um you know taken down a peg threatened with all sorts of um disciplinary action if they say the wrong thing
1: uh, and they are and that's the sort of um cult-like status that the nhs is outrageous isn't it and and it is a problem i think because unless you can have a candid and honest assessment of anything and this is of course the role of the media is to ask the tough the challenging questions and so that people come up with the right answers and like nobody here is saying that people at the top are are anything but committed uh to having a great health service but you can't just keep on saying it's a world-class health service when actually it could and the people inside it know that they could do better but they are working very hard let's be quite clear about that my brother's a doctor my Listen, I have
3: absolutely, George, no argument whatsoever with the people on the front line, the people who are exactly. sitting there uh, day after day after day um, in tears because it is a ghastly and a, a, a terribly stressful job, which which I certainly wouldn't want to do. But those are not the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about the yeah. people who, for example, produce um, a diversity pamphlet uh, because if you want to go and volunteer to work for them, unless you've done a diversity course, you can't do it. You know, the the people that Matt Hancock has to kind of sweep out of the way in order to make sure that the vaccination rollout works properly that kind of thing
1: yeah and, and and look any organization the larger it grows tends to grow these tentacles um naturally which are widespread now and and obviously diversity and inclusion is an important issue in the workplace but um what we are talking about mike i think is the is is equipping the great clinicians the great doctors and nurses the, the professors the the scientists with greater ability to 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 do even more great work, that's what we're talking about. To to let nurses nurse, and that's what we really need to do. And that requires some radical political surgery. And uh, and, and that requires a political atmosphere where all parties come together and say, you know what, we could do better. Let's not pretend everything is perfect, uh, and let's let's be even have an even better health service.
3: Yes, indeed. One piece of good news this morning, George, small firms uh, cheering this morning, a Supreme Court ruling that just happened a little while ago, uh, apparently peers to set to force insurers to pay out on disputed coronavirus business interruption claims, potentially worth one point two billion. This will help a lot of people because, again, I know uh, personally a couple of people who uh, whose insurance companies refuse to pay out. Uh, on the grounds that business interruption uh, was a cause uh, that the government had caused and it wasn't a business interruption by any other more normal means. And and, and people pay thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds for these insurance premiums and they were getting nothing back.
1: It's been a huge uh, concern for businesses who have claimed, as it now turns out from the Supreme Court, that they are rights to say uh, this wasn't government uh, at all. And of course, It's also got an impact, Mike, on the insurance industry um, and the financial services industry because, of course, they have been fighting their corner. And this is the point about uh, coronavirus, is that nobody is unscathed. Wherever you come out, uh, the small businesses who hopefully will get paid out justly now, but also the people who will have to pay them. The money comes from somewhere. Somebody impacted somewhere uh, and that will have big uh, implications no doubt for the financial service Mm. industry in whom a lot of pensions are invested.
3: Yes and talking of pensions we're told as well that an awful lot of pension money is uh, sort of locked into the the city of London uh, not just into the actual financial markets but also into buildings into property commercial property in particular. What's your sort of prognosis for this year in terms of people going back to offices in terms of offices becoming back to normal?
1: Well, it's hard to say. Uh, nobody really can tell how long we're going to be in this working from home situation. Uh, it seems like the numbers, the R number is going down, uh, which is good news. And as soon as the hospital uh, numbers go down, that will show that this period has worked. Vaccination, we're talking about over fifty being vaccinated by the end of March, which is well ahead of schedule. Uh, And we're hoping that lots of people who have had the disease will be immune, and that should give us a sense of platform to go back to work. Um, But there's always a danger, of course, of another strain coming in from another country. We know Brazil, we know South Africa, and we know that there are more strains out there. And so I think that the, the business community is going to be, although it's anxious to get back to some sort of normality, also doesn't want to take the risk Uh, of its own people becoming infected by a new strain. And I think, uh, my cautious estimate, is that we're not going to see normality, by which I mean what we were at last February, for maybe at least six months, maybe even into, into the autumn of next year.
3: No, absolutely right. And I mean, as far as the whole kind of um, rollout of, of business is concerned, some of the some of the people that you speak to on on a daily basis, uh, I know some of the airport companies that you're you uh, sort of uh, reporting into from time to time. What's their uh, mood at the moment? Are they feeling optimistic? Because with you know there are things to be optimistic about. It's not all doom and gloom. But but what's the business mood at the moment?
1: I think some businesses uh, feel that this is a very, very difficult time indeed, um, but they are, by and large, the great thing about businesses is that as long as they can take decisions and they can plan, they can do that. And they do that with a sense of confidence. I mean, clearly, the aviation industry has been absolutely hammered uh, by this, and they are looking for as much help as they can get. And that's going to be a, a situation which is going to be with us for some time, I think, in that sector. Is that the, um, a think, bat
3: phone going off there.
1: But it feels like it. But I think the one thing I would say is that uh, the, the Chancellor was talking uh, to businesses the other day, and he was making the point that there are some reasons to be, cheerful is the wrong word, but to be optimistic. You know, there's a lot of unspent money uh, in uh, people's bank accounts. There will be a sense of going out and spending money. And after all, spending money is what generates, makes the economy move around. Um, Now we're out of the European Union, there'll be clarity about uh, how Britain can build its own new regulatory uh, arrangements so that we can become a much more competitive country than we've been for the last 40 years. Uh, And that, although there will be uh, difficulties uh, in the first few weeks and months uh, being out of the EU, as we're seeing, Eventually that will come to a settled arrangement and that will give Britain and British businesses an opportunity and also international businesses, the, the, the like that we want to attract to this country. Uh, if this government can create the right operating environment, a much more op- attractive place to be, then they those companies will come here and invest and when they invest it means more money, it means more jobs, it means more confidence in the UK, and it sends a great big signal that Britain is back in business, and Britain is open for business, and a great place to be. So there are reasons to be optimistic, even though right now, uh, some sectors are having a very, very difficult time, uh, and no question about that, and uh, we hope that they can find a way back, and I'm sure they will, particularly in the aviation sector, in, in time. But we need people to be confident, and we need people to spend money.
3: Absolutely. George Pascoe Watson, thank you very much indeed. Chairman of Portland Communications, former political editor of The Sun.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: And it's time to say a very good morning to Mr Dan Hodges. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for, co- for joining us. Pleasure as always. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Now, listen, um, I, I, I'm greatly in favour of, of some Twitter spats that I have, particularly if they end up with people like you and I having a civilised conversation on the radio, which is kind of what we want to do. We've had uh, conversations before. You and I agree on quite a lot of things. But my first question to you really, I suppose, is this. And I know that it can be difficult because I've argued with Peter Hitchens on, uh, on Twitter before, um, and he is quite a, an impenetrable man in some ways. Um, however... Um, can we not try to keep it sort of relatively civil? I suppose would be my first question.
2: Uh, well, I think uh, I think Peter and I have been keeping it quite civil, haven't we? I mean, obviously we're we're both quite robust in terms of how we engage, and there's been a few little spiky barbs, I suppose, going back and forth. But but in the main, I think it's been quite a. Uh, quite a, a, a reasonable and, and reasoned debate. I don't. Th- I mean, I certainly haven't got any problems with the way it's been conducted. I mean, I don't know if Peter does.
3: Well, I mean, I keep reading some of his tweets in which he basically claims that you can't make an argument and that he therefore is going to leave you to your own devices and he's never going to talk to you again until the next time he talks to you.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Peter does have uh, a bit of a habit of marking his own work and sort of... Uh, sort of pulling the score in his own favour and and as you said, I mean, actually, this is, I mean, whilst people say this is kind of a dialogue between us, I mean, the reality is every morning Peter gets up and trawls through my tweets and starts firing off a series of questions to me about them but that's fine Um, and like I said, um, I, I don't think either of us has particularly crossed the line in terms of how we've engaged. As I say, I think that's entirely how
3: it should be. Yeah, Well, indeed. And and in fact, I mean, he's asked me already whether I would host uh, a, de- a proper debate between the two of you, which which you and I can talk about, which I'd very much like to do, actually. Um, and we could do it here. I'm not quite sure what the circumstances would be, whether it'd be on Zoom or whether you'd be actually able to come into the building. But if you're willing to, 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 to think about that, that would be something we could do in the future. Because I think the thing that we're all arguing about inevitably, um, is not a kind of finite thing. You know, it's it's something that we all have an opinion on. In terms of the lockdown working, it's almost impossible to ever know whether it has. I mean, like this morning, for example, uh, we're told that because of the lockdown, we've managed to get the R rate down. Now, earlier this week, I was told by a medical expert, uh, we probably won't see the benefits of the lockdown for two to three weeks from now
2: well i think it depends on where we're seeing the ra falling i mean obviously one of the one of the problems is obviously we've had you know throughout throughout the the pandemics that, well since the since the first lockdown if you like we've had a rather piecemeal approach and we've obviously had it again here in terms of the the, the lockdown that we've seen obviously it was, it was it was initially introduced in london and and the southeast and then was extended sort of nationwide I mean, I think, as you say, there are some tentative, we've got to be very, very careful with this. There are some very tentative signs and current signs that it is, it, the infection rate may be starting to plateau or even fall, but it's very, very early days where i mean again i completely agree with you absolutely that we need to you know debate this uh and and it's absolutely vital that everybody has the space to to put their arguments i was arguing this yesterday against some people who were saying you know we should start to censor people lockdown skeptics etc i was pushing back very strongly about that one thing i do i do think though and i think and i am becoming increasingly concerned about is we have to debate on the basis of actual hard fact Now, you know, a a few weeks ago, a number of people, obviously, I've been, you know, in in dispute a lot with your your colleague, Julia Brewer. A number of people were saying, look, the problem is it's it's false infection rates. The problem is people are going into hospital with broken legs. They've got they've got a a mild form of covid. They're being classified as a covid patient. We've got the constant thing about the, the, the people who die are being misclassified because because of they, they died but they also had COVID at that time of death but that wasn't really the cause all of that was fine a month ago all of that was fine and legitimate legitimate the reality is we can all see now the hard reality we can see what's happening to the health service we can see what's happening to death rates we can see what's happening to infections we can see the pressure it's put in on the health service and how the NHS is reaching crisis point so let's by all means let's let's debate the balance the ethics the morality of lockdown the impact dot the impact on civil liberty the impact on the economy that's fine but let's not pretend that what is actually happening in hospitals, as you and I speak, is not a very, very severe crisis. Oh, I don't, is- I
3: don't think any of us would would, would, would deny that, Dan. But I think there is a difference in suggesting, huh? for example, the methodology uh, of counting the numbers has not changed, and there is no question uh, in 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 my mind, anyway, uh, that there are people who go into hospital. Uh, for a different reason other than having Covid, but who then catch Covid in hospital because that does happen. And that's a a fact as well, because an awful lot of the infection rates for Covid have gone up because of people going into hospital. We've seen last night on Channel 4 News a report in which it says uh, that a lot of hospitals have now basically stopped doing anything else as a result of this pandemic. Now, there's any number of reasons for that. Um, Obviously, the main one being that they're dealing with an awful lot of COVID patients. But it's also because the NHS perhaps has not been properly prepared for something like this, even though Chris Whitty was saying that they should have been for quite a long time. Also, when you look at things like um, the, uh, the, the numbers of people dying, there is also no doubt that people who have had a COVID test in the last 28 days are being counted as a COVID death. And it may not be that they did die from COVID. They died with it.
2: No, but I, but, but, but I mean, this is where I, I, I am going to take issue. I mean, you said no one's been saying, no one's been questioning. People have been questioning and people are continuing to question whether the impact on the NHS, the infections, the hospitalisations and the deaths are real. As you just accurately pointed out, quoting the Channel 4 report for hospitals now that are basically dealing with nothing else but COVID. Right. So there are either two reasons why the people who work in those hospitals are saying that. They're either lying or they are genuinely now dealing all exclusive, almost exclusively with, with COVID cases. And if they are dealing almost exclusively with COVID cases, that shows that what we were being told a month ago about infections, what we've been told about hospital, hospitalizations, and tragically, what we've been told about deaths, all of that is accurate. It's not about misreporting on, on, on data. It's not about misclarification of data. It's not about putting the wrong thing on a death certificate. These are real people in hospital in huge, unprecedented num- numbers who are fighting for their lives and having to be treated. Hmm. That's the reality of this pandemic. No, I accept that. But, but
3: People- the pandemic has also changed, Dan, because what we have now is the new variant. And the new variant changed everything. I mean, we saw Keir Starmer at uh, Prime Minister's Questions this week trying to make more political point scoring by saying to Boris Johnson, here's what you said on December the 16th. Uh, you were more or less convinced that things were uh, settling down. And Boris, to his great uh, to credit, and I'm no dif- I'm no great supporter of Boris Johnson by any means, he said, well, because we didn't know until the 18th of December about the new variant. And the new variant, I think, Dan, has changed everything.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think it has changed the pandemic. And what it's done is it's made the pandemic worse, because as we were told on the 18th of December, this this new variant, it was much more infectious, wasn't more lethal, but was much more infectious, which meant that a lot more people were going to get it. But my, we were told that on the eighteenth eighteenth of December and I was pointing that out on the eighteenth of December, and I was saying that was why it was absolutely vital that the country locked down so we could get to grips with this dangerous new strain. And with great respect, a number of a number of people, not yourself, I'm not I'm not by any means putting this at your door, number of your a number of your colleagues, even then, and since then, have been consistently attempting to claim that the danger we were facing and the pressure the NHS was under was not real. It was being artificially inflated by a false interpretation of the figures. And that simply wasn't true. And people are still, despite everything, despite the facts in front of us, despite what we're seeing in our health service, people today are still trying to deny the reality.
3: Yes, but again, I think there's a difference between questioning and denying the reality. And, and, you know, I'm not going to argue on behalf of anybody else. I can only argue on behalf of myself. Um, but of certainly um, on December the 27th, uh, week ending December the 27th, Public Health England statistics of their, ver- their very own statistics of ICU occupancy and ICU availability showed that there were uh, some hospitals in which the availability was zero because they were 98 percent full or 99 percent full. Now, I can't tell you what happened after the 27th of December because I haven't got those figures. But the Sunday Times published those figures for the whole nation of England. Right. And there were plenty of hospitals, I would say about half, who were only 50 percent full. And so that's the kind of thing I think that people who are interested in facts would like to see more of, because the trouble is there's a kind of evangelical sense about a lot of not what you do, Dan, but a lot of people like you. I mean, this guy, Neil O'Brien, I'm not quite sure uh, which particular hole he crawled out of, but some of the stuff he's putting out there is nasty, horrible, causing pylons to people and making out that even questioning the government is somehow the wrong thing to do.
2: No, absolutely. And I certainly wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't doubt it. We, we, we have a right to question the, 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 the government. But again, Mike, you've just given a classic example. You just quote figures... About what the situation was in hospitals on the twenty eighth of December.
3: Yeah,
2: right. Now we all know what one of the big drivers of the second wave is. At Christmas, the lockdown restrictions in significant parts of the country were lifted. As a result of that, a large number of people for for one day. Sorry.
3: Well, the the Christmas, the Christmas Day situation, you mean?
2: Yeah. And large numbers of people travelled around the country. We all saw the pictures of people, you know, stampeding out of London traveled around the country went to see relatives now as you also know there is a lag there's a lag between when people will get the infection when they display symptoms when those symptoms become so severe they are then hospitalized and then tragically when that when those in hospitals actually die mm. and that is the lag we are seeing now so to say to point to what the fig what the situation was on the 28th of december and to say look this shows there's not a problem that's not problem, what i'm saying no that, no, no dan or, that's not or, what i'm saying or, i'm not
3: i'm not or, saying that i'm not saying or, that because me,
2: of those let me finish Go on. Or, or or saying that, that this point, because 50% of hospitals at that point had spare capacity or hospitals had 50% spare capacity that is an indication that maybe the problem isn't or wasn't quite as bad that's not true because of the lag between infections hospitalisations and deaths. Yes, Okay. But the reason I said that was not
3: to say there's not a problem. The reason I said that was that in that very week we were being told officially that hospitals were full and they were not and that was incorrect. And so what I'd like to see from the government and from people like yourself is a slightly more honest approach the, the figures are bad enough. You know, it's a bit like The Crown making up stories about Charles and Diana. You know, their story was sensational enough without somebody making up new stuff that they never actually did. It's the same with the coronavirus pandemic. People are sick to death of being told things which are not strictly true. Yes, some hospitals are full and were full at that time. But at that time, we were being told that pretty much all hospitals were full. And I think that's what people object to. Yeah, I take
2: issue with that because I think, you know... There might be, there might be a, a, an issue of over-exaggeration in, in some quarters. Again, I'm not accusing you, you of this, by the way. But the biggest problem is not that people have been over-exaggerating. The biggest problem is a number of people who, for legitimate reasons, intelligent reasons, I used to be one of them once, who, for legitimate reasons, object to lockdown, are concerned about lockdown, who simply have been unable, unwilling, to accept that the situation has changed. You started off by saying this because of of the the new strain. We've now got the vaccine, which means we can finally bring an end to this. But the simple reality is too many people within the, if you want to call it the lockdown sceptic community, have simply been unable and unwilling to change their opinion based on the new facts. And the fact is, you know it, I know it, the reality is, today, whatever happened before, doesn't matter what happened before, the reality today is the NHS is at breaking point. COVID is real. It's real. It's the biggest threat we have faced in this country, Big, biggest public health threat you we have faced in this country in your and my lifetimes, right? That is the reality. And people who continue to come up with these these pedantic arguments and, and try and, you know, these pedantic stupid sort of passing of the figure saying oh well yeah what about this on the death certificate or what about this this testing regime the reality is very very large numbers of people are being infected are being hospitalized and are being dying and very and many people, and also and also <laughs>
3: dan use like
2: oh, was... statistics to try and to try and diminish that reality have got to take a long hard look at no, well let, let me let me answer that Why do we
3: not see statistics, for example, on the very large numbers of people who are infected and who go into hospital and who leave hospital alive? We don't have those figures because nobody tells us what they are. But you know as well as I do that the vast majority of people who get COVID do not die. And as Matt Hancock himself has said, 88% of people who get COVID and die are over 70. Now, that doesn't make it any less serious. That doesn't make it any nicer or any better. But what I'm saying is, uh, is that, you know, there are some people uh, on the side that you tend to uh, to lean towards who make it out to be the biggest health threat that we've ever faced, as you've just said. Yes, it is. For an awful lot of people, it's very dangerous. For an awful lot of other people, it's not.
2: But Mike, you just you just agree with me, right? So it's the biggest health threat we've for, ever for, faced.
3: Not for everybody, for, 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 for very many people who are vulnerable, but for most people... They get it, they recover.
2: No, absolutely. Uh, Fortunately, very large numbers of people who get COVID will not die of it. But unfortunately, a very large number of people, because it is such a terribly infectious disease, will die of it. We are now, as a result of COVID, experiencing, experiencing levels of mortality now That have not been seen in this country since the nineteen forties, since the war amongst civilians. That COVID is a bigger killer than the blitz was. Hold up.
4: Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at Oseamalibu.com.
0: That's O S E A MALIBU.com code SUMMER.
3: So, yeah, but I mean, that's why the NHS is here. But we still hear, but we still hear, Dan, from people in the NHS who say that the biggest aim of the lockdown is not to stop people dying because I don't think you can. One thing we know is that this COVID disease spreads as it wants to, at will, pretty much, right? There is nothing that we have done that has stopped the spread of it. There is nothing that we have done as a country uh, or as any other country has done that has prevented people from dying. People are dying in bigger numbers now than they were back in April. What does that tell you? It tells you that all of the measures that we put in haven't actually been very beneficial to the community so you then have to ask a question are you really willing as a result of not being able to stop it to allow other people's lives to be ruined livelihoods to be completely diminished and and destroyed and people's mental health to be absolutely and utterly devastated I'm getting messages as we're speaking about Christmas many people at Christmas didn't see their families loads of people did what the government asked them to do right and so we're in a very bad crisis socially as well. And I think you have to take that into account when you argue these things.
2: But we all take this, but we, we do take these, these, these into these into account. But as I said, the reality is we can take that into account and we do take that into account. But you cannot ignore the fact that thousands, we're going to get, the, I, I don't know what happened to the figures yesterday. We're going to get, the, we're going to get the figures, right? The latest, the latest COVID figures. Thousands of people over the last two days will have died because of COVID. Mike, there are people listening to this programme now, sadly, who in two or three weeks' time will be dead because of COVID. Okay? We can argue, we can talk about the social cost. We all know the social cost. We're all experiencing it. We can talk about the mental health cost.
3: Well when you say we're all experiencing, I think that's not true. Because I'm in a much I'm in a much happier position and so are you than many people are.
2: Yes, but that, but that doesn't alter the fundamental fact. Thousands of people are dying. I can sit here and be. So, in other words, they are, but, but in other as words, as are, Dan, like me, in a, in a, it doesn't. A, alter, it doesn't alter the fundamental fact. This is a circular argument. There is, we have got to try and protect public health. Yeah,
3: well, yeah, but if, if, if but you if, but, you, yeah, but hang on, Dan. If if thousands of people are dying, you're not protecting public health, are you?
2: But Mike, thousands of people die of cancer every year. Are you saying that's an argument for not having cancer treatment?
3: Well, I'm saying it's certainly not an argument for locking down the economy, is it? So that people don't get cancer. But no, Mike. We tr-
2: Mike, the fact that the fact that we cannot protect everyone does not mean we should not try and protect anyone. Of course, this is not perfect. Of course, lockdown is not a perfect solution. Of course, it doesn't eradicate the virus. The only real solution is the vaccine. Now, thank God we've got the vaccine, which means if we lock down, we reduce the number of infections. If we reduce the number of infections, we reduce the number of people who die. We are fortunately now in a position where we do not any longer require a completely unsustainable open-ended lockdown. If we can just hang on for another eight to 12 weeks, we will have vaccinated the most vulnerable people in society and we can start to reopen the country, reopen and un- unlock and reopen the country. But what we cannot do. Well, why don't you press the government do to the- do that, Dan, because that's what I'm doing.
3: But apparently do- by doing that, I'm in some way uh, getting blood on my hands, according to some people.
2: But as I said, I'm, I'm, but as I said, I, I'm distinguishing between the stance that you've adop- you're adopting and the stance of others. You are saying if you're saying, look, we have the lockdown, we have to protect people. But as soon as we've got the most vulnerable people protected, then we have to unlock. We can't entertain this stuff about, well, maybe we should have, we should continue this into the the autumn, next winter. Then I completely agree with you. I'm completely there with you on that, Mike, where the people I'm not with are those people who continue to try and undermine and downplay and diminish The actual reality that is now facing the National Health Service and facing all of us as a result of this crisis.
3: Okay. well, I won't speak for Toby Young, but I will speak for Julie Hartley Brewer. She's not undermining anything. She is simply trying to make a case for those people who are being damaged beyond repair by all of these measures, which are still in place uh, without any hope of really finding a way out. But I'm getting uh, shouted up by my producer, Dan. Listen, I've enjoyed it. Uh, Let's do it some more. Uh, Let's do it some more uh, when we know some more as well, because I think somewhere in the middle of all of this is the answer.
2: Brilliant. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, I think I know what the answer is. We need to lock down. We need to get people vaccinated. Okay. Thanks for for having me on again, mate.
3: Dan Hodges, Mail on Sunday contributor. You might not agree with him, but at least we can be civil to one another and we can talk about it in a way uh, that that bloke, uh, Neil O'Brien, the MP, can't. He's going to be on my list for a start. This is Talk Radio.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: I've just been told off for of punching the mic. I didn't mean to punch the mic in the same way that I didn't mean to be balanced. You know, it's one of those days. I can't get everything right, can I? Let's talk to Lisa Francesca Nand, uh, travel journalist uh, like most of us who hasn't travelled very far recently. Lisa, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome.
5: Good afternoon
3: Mike. Now uh, before we start on the travel front I noticed that you put out um, a tweet the other day about homeschooling because we're going to do a bit of that in this hour. It's very frustrating isn't it for a lot of parents particularly guys like yourself who are working um, at home trying to get things done supposedly having to supervise uh, the teaching of children. I'm one of those people who I'm I'm aware of the the, the reasons why they've shut the schools but they've really got to reopen them haven't they?
5: Do you know what, Mike? It's hideous. I cannot explain to you how hideous it is and how I am, I am honestly really, really struggling. I've got two primary school children, eight and six. And when you're trying to teach two children of different ages, different things, they're not independent. You know, Thankfully, I've got laptops for both of them, mm. but they can't get online on their own. And they're really struggling to, mm. to do stuff without me. So then, of course, when I'm trying to do them, then I'm not doing my own work. And then you've got You know, you're at home all day, you've got the heating on all day. Just it's so difficult for so many parents. Yeah, it it really
3: is. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And I mean, you know, I I, you know, we we sometimes are, are, shall we say, less than uh, congratulatory to teachers. But teachers do a great job. They do a very difficult job, which most of us can't do because we, one, haven't got the patience or, two, the time. Um, but it really, one of the things that I've been saying all week is that the, the damage being done to, to kids, I mean, my, mine are teenagers, and, you know, you can see in their eyes, they're kind of looking around at times going, what on earth is going on? When am I going to see my friends again? When am I going to have a normal, you know, teenage life? My youngest son's got a birthday today, which we're going to celebrate, but we can't actually do anything.
5: I feel so sorry for teenagers. I mean, mine are eight and six, and they are beating the hell out of each other quite frequently throughout the day because they're just they're just fed up of each other. They have no no space away from right. each other. But teen, it must be the most awful time to be separated from your friends when you're a mm. teenager. You don't want to hang around with your mum and no. dad, you know, nice nice as you are, you know, all the time. You don't you want to go out with your mates, don't yeah. you? So it's I
3: mean, fun. I've been saying to the sixteen year old, "Why don't you go and hang around on some street corners?" I mean, these are things you never <laughs> thought you'd actually say, you know.
5: Drink some cider, for goodness yeah, sake, on the street corner. I
3: know. Obviously, with uh, re- drink responsibly, uh, but not when you're underage. But anyway, that's another story. Let's talk All about that, yeah. uh, a bit of a sort of a shock announcement yesterday. It came out of the blue, uh, like so much stuff these days seems to do. It started off, I think I'm right in saying, as a kind of travel ban for people coming into the UK from Portugal if they'd also been recently in the, mid- in, in, in the middle of uh, South America. But it suddenly quickly became a lot harder than that, didn't it?
5: It did. I mean, it's great fun, actually, being a travel journalist at the moment, because it's almost like, guess what's going to happen now? So right. it did It did start out small and then it escalated. And it now I think the ban is now encompassing 16 countries from South America and mm. also Cape Verde and Portugal as well. Now, South America is not going to mean a big deal to travellers at the moment. Not many people are coming in from South America. Um, but Portugal is going to be a bigger deal because, of course, we have stronger connections there. There's a lot of uh, British residents that live there. British citizens that live there. There's a lot of people that go on extended holidays there. And of course you are allowed back into the country if you're a British citizen. But how can you get back in the country when the flights are not going? Mm. So you might be allowed in, but you might not physically be able to come home unless you, you know, skip over to the border to Spain. People are talking now about the banner being extended to Spain because why have Portugal when you don't have Spain and there's no, you know, physical borders really to get between the two of them yes um so it's all it's all very complicated and, and like you said rapidly changing
3: yes exactly right um because we had a question earlier on in the week which i promised to ask to somebody so i'm going to ask it to you uh who wanted i'm not even quite sure how he would manage to do this but he basically said he was in line to get a vaccination fairly soon uh as a and as a result he decided he wanted to go and celebrate that by traveling abroad somewhere he didn't even care where but he did say um What happens if I return from being somewhere? Do I still have to get a COVID test if I have, in fact, had the vaccination? What's the answer to that?
5: there isn't a definitive answer because it hasn't specifically been mentioned but the vaccine isn't going to make any difference you're going to have to still do the test as far as i know and still do the isolation as well Mm. um which is interesting it's not at the moment and i'm I'm guessing at some point they might have to do this because more and more people are getting vaccinated and there's going to be a definition between the people that have been vaccinated and the people that haven't been vaccinated but well, at the that, moment, they, just because you've had the vaccination, you can't get out of the tests, and you can't get out of the 10 days quarantine as well. But that's on the, of, on
3: the so, sorry, yeah, I'm well. going to say that's kind of the madness of it, isn't it? Because say, for example, you've had the vaccination, uh, you've got a negative test, you fly back into Britain. What on earth would be the reason for having to go into self-isolation? It's crazy.
5: Well, they don't yet know, do they, whether you if you've got the vaccine, whether you're just as likely to spread it or less likely to spread it. I think that because it's so new mm. and only, say, three million people say only, it's, it's pretty good going, but only three million people have had the virus and we're all in isolation. They don't really know, scientists wise, they don't really know whether it stops you from transmitting it mm. um, if you've got it. They know that it reduces serious problems in you by 90 odd percent, but they don't know whether you, you've um, it's going to stop you transmitting it. So I'm right. guessing if you have travelled abroad, then you should you know continue to isolate as well unless of course
3: like- uh, unless of course you're one of those high net worth individuals like madonna uh, who apparently was able to fly around the world including a stop off in the uk to pick up one of her children uh, and that's not
5: it a is problem. very annoying it's annoying seeing the, uh, the influences I think mean, you've probably seen the all over the press this week people in Dubai saying oh but I'm working yeah. and just because you can work abroad I mean a lot of us are working from home and a lot of us could take our laptops and go abroad and work just because you can if you can find a valid reason to get out there it doesn't mean you should does mm. it because I don't think those people have to be in Dubai lovely as Dubai is and it would be nice for all of us to be you know working from a beach right now
3: well yeah but except Dubai funnily enough um, I was told this by my daughter when she was back at Christmas before Christmas Christmas, when it opened up as a travel corridor, suddenly it became the go to destination for all sorts of people from this country who wanted to go and party. And they've now uh, got to the point where Covid has now returned to Dubai, uh, which is why the the Celtic football team managed to catch it while they were there. Um, And that's why they've now done away with the travel corridor. And they're talking about putting another curfew into Dubai because the Brits have basically exported Covid there.
5: Yeah, it seems to be a well-trodden path now. I was reading today about Cornwall because Cornwall, was, it was in tier one and lots yeah. of people went out there and socialised. Now they, they're getting hit quite badly. And I think now, you know, we're beginning to see these patterns, aren't we? We're beginning to see that it happens with some of the Greek islands, you know, some of them are open and some of them are shut again when we had our travel corridors, which really don't, you know, are, are pretty worth us now because mm. no one's, theoretically allowed to travel but yeah it seems to be a a pattern that's emerging and and obviously I guess interesting though I I liked everyone booking the um this week in the news we saw that lots of pensioners were booking holidays thinking that they're going to get their vaccines and they're going (laughs) to be traveling and I really do you know what I hope I hope that that's the case you know my own parents are 81 and 77 and I'd love them to be thinking I'm going to get a vaccine I'm going to live you know and go out and see family and friends and that sort of thing but yeah you know as you were saying they're still going to be subject to the same rules but good on the pensioners for going out and booking some travel yes
3: absolutely right because i mean i've completely lost track i mean it's hard enough keeping track of what's going on in this country but i've completely lost track of where you're allowed to go uh without having to quarantine when you come back and presumably um even if you were to arrange some kind of trip like that for for some time say i don't know i mean i would say half term but i don't even know if we're going to have a half term uh or easter which i don't even know we're going to have either um but i'm sort of reluctant still to book any holidays at the moment because i just don't know one, what the situation is going to be then and where it's going to be that we can go without sort of being punished on our return.
5: Yeah, you and the rest of the world really. We we don't really have a clue where we can go. Um, there are places where you, you can go where the UK government are allowing us to go, but they don't want us in, so it, it's it doesn't really matter. I've been brave. I've got flights to Malaga where my family are for Easter. Um a brave, stupid, one of those things. I don't know if I'll be able to take them, but like many people, I still had vouchers to use mm. with an airline, so I changed them for a date, thinking, well, it's not going to be half term, let's try Easter. And if we are allowed to travel, um, and from my personal point of view my parents have had the vaccine because uh, they're in spain i will go but if we can't then we can change it anyway good news for us because you know it's that we have that flexibility not so great for the airlines and mm. industry which is sort of on its knees i'm right. sure you read about a Air- norwegian yes uh, i did so are they are they, are they are
3: they done for now because i thought i seem to remember a few months back or maybe a year ago there was talk of ba taking them over
5: um, and I don't know the actual details or they don't know the actual details aren't out there. Nothing's been finalized. But what they have said uh, yesterday is that they're stopping their their long haul routes. And that was such a shame because a lot of people t- uh, took them. I took them mm. to New York a few months. Uh, I was going to say a few months ago. That's what a, <laughs> a weird year it's been. However, sometimes at the end of 2019, I took it and they were brilliant. It was my first long haul flight with them. And they were really good. Um, as far as I know, they're stopping long haul, but um, I know they were in trouble. Um, whether that, you know, what will happen now, it, uh, we'll have to wait, wait and see. I'm sure that's what they're doing as yeah, well. Yeah,
3: exactly. I mean, some people have good stories about Norwegian and bad stories about Norwegian. I mean, I know people who flew transatlantic with them who said it was pretty awful. Uh, but I went to, I think it was uh, Sicily with them. Um, and they were great. So, I mean, you know, I think maybe they're better at short haul than they are at long haul.
5: The long haul, New York was, a, I mean, it doesn't matter now, I don't even know why we're talking about it, because they're not going to do them anymore. But as far as we know, but it was great. I, I had a flatbed on the way back with business class. It was mm. really good. I don't normally fly business class, but it was about the same as it would have been for a normal class t- uh, seat and someone yes. else was paying because it was for work. So right. it's like, yeah.
3: No, excellent. No, because I mean, one of the things that, that I think put people off was that you had to to go to New York. You had to either agree to pay something like twenty five quid for their food, uh, or you had to bring your own food. And it's one thing to go short, you know, one hour, two hours, maybe with a sandwich. But I mean, if you're on a transatlantic flight for seven hours, you don't want to just be sitting there eating out of a paper bag, really, do you? Well,
5: do you know what I've taken with long haul flights? Sometimes I take the opportunity to fast. I know that sounds a little bit um what? A, a bit sort of halo. I what know, sort of but talk you know. <laughs> either to fast or to just drink lots, depending yeah. on what mood i'm in but um yeah you know anyway they're, they're stopping so and nobody's going anywhere at the moment but mm. let's hope that we all start going somewhere for those of us who want to go somewhere yeah um we'll start going around easter maybe that's
3: yeah well possible. i guess i mean I'm, I'm that's what i'm thinking i bet i said very difficult as like i say it's very difficult to know and i mean impossible as well i suppose to know um what the rules are going to be, because at the moment, am I right in saying that no matter where you're coming from now abroad, if you're coming back to the UK, you have to have a negative test?
5: Yes, you have to have a negative test. So there's no exceptions? No exceptions, no. Um, Obviously, like the the previous except like the hauliers and the the lorry drivers, but in terms of like, you know, normal travellers, no. The one quite horrifying thing is, is what if you were in a country and you got a positive test, you've got to stay there at your own expense for the next two weeks and, and isolate. So if you're staying with family, friends or family, or you're lucky enough to have a holiday home, Not so bad, but if you had to, uh, if you're in a hotel or something like that, if you do get positive test, you'll not be allowed to fly, and um, you'll have to stay in that destination for a further two weeks on top of the time you've already been there. Yes, and
3: would you be able to claim on that? Do you think if I suppose it, again depends on what sort of travel insurance you've got, but but I mean I've seen. Some travel insurance changing, for example, over the last few months, where they've now said that if your, if your, if your holiday gets cancelled as a result of COVID, you may not be covered um, if you yeah. bought it you know, through your credit card.
5: Yeah, a lot of um, travel, travel insurance is, is very rapidly changing, you know, because they've got to try and keep up with all these rules as well. Uh, a lot of people are now are offering COVID cover. Um, and you'll notice like with some of the, the tour operators, they'll say COVID cover included. So that sort of puts people at peace in mind because this legislation with the um, with having to isolate if you're stuck in a country is very new. Um, the jury's still out whether that COVID cover um, will cover that at the moment. Mm. So it's it's all very, very changeable. Yeah.
3: But, um, So, so, and I mean, at the moment you can't even get in the car and go, as you say, to Cornwall or Scotland or Wales or wherever it is you might fancy a weekend away. Um, I mean, how are the British kind of holiday homes and the British um, holiday sort of uh, destinations faring? Because that must be quite a big battle for them to be able to kind of keep themselves going
5: yeah absolutely you know when we talk about travel we often talk about international travel well travel to this country is still very very important it brings in billions and billions of pounds a year uh to the economy you know from everything from the the massive tourist attractions in in london and around the country to your little tea rooms your restaurants your you know your Donkey rides—they still do donkey rides, but you know your ice I cream so, yeah. vendors—all. I'm not sure if they are allowed anymore, but um, maybe someone can tell us. But all those tiny little things that are tourism dependent—you know—it's absolutely heartbreaking. Those little family businesses, mm. let alone the big organisations that are also in danger of, of going. So, of course, these these places are—you are, know—not not busy at the moment. There's nobody there, and um, think of all the people that were surviving from renting out Airbnb. Mm. You know that had become like quite a viable business for a lot of people. Now, I know a lot of people. Might might not have sympathy for for landlords, but it, you know, again, it's like all these all these knock-on businesses that are being affected. So you know, we need people, and the Tory government, you know, that we know they, they do like to encourage business, and I'm just hoping that that means that as soon as possible we want it. We need to get the economy moving. We obviously need to balance it out with the with the science and with people getting sick and mm. dying. It's absolutely awful, and that does need to be a priority. However, for all the financial reasons and all the health reasons that will go along with people losing their jobs and their incomes. We really need to get people moving like going out of the country and coming into our country as well
3: sure well let's hope we get some good news soon lisa thanks very much indeed the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio it's friday it's 12 48 and it's time for this
1: ladies and gentlemen welcome to the perrier awards
3: So many people behind the glass today, but uh, reasonably full compliance, I would say, with the um, the yes. crew. Yes,
4: I told them I would impeach them. Yes. If they uh, if they That's did not comply. That's okay. Compline. It doesn't
3: mean anything anymore. No, of course. You can impeach whoever you like. Absolutely, it means not. nothing.
4: Yeah, and and Holly's not coming back next week because she's what? N- not for any reason. Really? Because you know someone else is coming back next okay. week. Okay. But uh, but you know it doesn't matter. We'll like impeach Donald her Trump anyway. Then. Yes. So, so, so she's they're leaving. They're both leaving. Is yes. she going in a helicopter. Possibly. Right. Possibly. Okay. Yeah. We've 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 put the request in. Okay. Very Might good. Rejected. You Excellent. never know. Very anyway, good. good afternoon. Welcome. And welcome to the Perrier Awards. Thank you. This is where we look back over the past week of the so-called, so-called. Independent Republic of my grandma on talk radio and choose our favourite moments. And as it's tradition, Mike, the first Perrier goes Excellent. to you. Can you guess which one it is?
3: Um, You know, I can't imagine what you've got this week because I've completely forgotten everything. It's as if my mind has gone completely blank.
4: Well, it's speaking of forgetting, is the, uh, oops, Mike forgets how to speak
3: again. Okay. I seen any studies like that, but it's um, one of the, pu- pu- the pu- puzzling things. <laughs> I mean, puzzling's not even hard. Why no. can't you say puzzling? It's not even a difficult word.
4: I think that's a question to ask yourself. It is. Maybe, mm. I don't know, yes. go and sit in an empty room.
3: Well, there's plenty of Stir those around the here.
4: Yes, exactly.
3: Yeah, the whole building's full of
4: empty <laughs> yeah. rooms. So just pick one and just go and stare at the wall and think okay. about why that happened. Good. Uh, let's move on now to regular contributor Neil Oliver because he wins a peri for the euphemism of the week.
1: This morning at seven o'clock, I find myself standing out in the dark in the garden once again uh, waiting for a puck to um, reverse park its breakfast. <laughs>
4: That was good. That's brilliant. Very nicely put. I've, I've never seen it put like that. No. And I'm like, that's very clever. And also,
3: it doesn't make you feel un- sort of nasty and horrible, no, does it? Because no. whenever people talk about stuff like that, it's not normally oh, nice. Oh, gosh,
4: it's terrible. No, mm. I just thought of a lorry. Reverse parking. Yeah. That was it? And yeah, I was like, beep, that's a very nice...
3: That sort of thing. Yeah,
4: like a big, big, big lorry. Good. Yellow as well, for some reason. Yes. I don't know why. I don't why. know why, no. Um, Travel Guru Salman Calder. We've
3: got to talk about him. Yes. It. We do so like a lot
4: of things have happened this mm. week with him. Uh, the first one is that both of you, you and Simon, uh, believed that he spoke to you this week for <laughs> the first time this yes. year. Both of you were wrong, yeah, like terribly, terribly wrong. And for that, you two win a period for what I've called your Groundhog Day Tribute.
3: Uh, travel expert here at talk radio because uh, he's kept us well informed over the whole year last year and i'm sure he's going to do the same this year simon a very very good morning and a happy new year to you well let me be the first
2: i'm the first aren't i mike to wish you a happy <laughs> new
3: year now i think i'm right in saying this is the first time i've spoken to simon calder this year so i'm going to say a very happy new year mr calder welcome back uh mike let me be the first to <laughs> wish you a happy new year i am the first aren't i no no you're not I, what twice he said that twice. That he makes said it that. worse than what I did then. He forgot twice. Whereas you maybe know
4: maybe he forgot because you forgot. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe he remembered but he went along with it.
3: Right. But maybe it's just a line that he puts out to everyone. Am I the first? <laughs> because I mean that was by by this week it was well into January.
4: It was the so same he, script, yeah. He
3: couldn't have been the first, even then. No. Even if he was right. Yes. You know what I mean? I don't know.
4: I don't know. That's why I say we have to talk about uh, Simon yes, Calder. There will be an do. inquiry going on yes. uh, in the next few weeks to find out what happened I do happened remember there.
3: something else that happened when he was on. I don't know if you've got that.
4: It's possible because I've got two more. Okay. So um, let me do the next two. Right. And then uh, we can see. Uh, he joined us from Kensington Garden, Simon Calder. And on this occasion, he also won a parry for the Animal
2: Intrusion of the Week. Yeah, it's a pretty much a one-way <laughs> transaction. Not, not a lot of interacting with people. You're just going through, putting putting letters in their letterboxes. I can't see. <laughs> I love ducks. I think that's
3: the first time we've had ducks on the show, isn't it?
4: It is possible, yeah.
3: I mean, we've had a seagull before. Remember, he yes. was attacked by a seagull in Brighton.
4: We had a parrot as well.
3: Parrots we've had. We've had, had dogs. Dogs, mm. cats.
4: Yeah, cats. Not ducks. No.
3: I don't think so, anyway.
4: Well, there you go. It's mm. a new one, then. There we have. Double perrier. Marvellous. You see? Well done. Um, And never two without streak. Simon Calder also wins a parrier for the harsh comment of the week.
2: I'm hoping to get away back end of March. I have no idea where to. Right. Well, frankly, I'll go anywhere which will me. It's a bit, like, <laughs> a bit like you
3: and pubs. Um, That's very harsh. I don't know why you would make that uh, analogy at all. That's very harsh indeed, yeah. You see, some people think I have a sort of reputation mm. for going to the pub. But you know, I haven't been to a pub. I remember the last time I went to the pub, actually.
4: Well, it's because they're closed, isn't that, exactly. it?
3: exactly. <laughs> I think it was before Christmas.
4: Well, yeah, very possibly. I mean,
3: certainly, obviously, it was before Christmas. Well, yeah,
4: um, I don't remember the last time I, I went to a pub. I certainly haven't been
3: inside a pub. I think since October. No. Because they shut them all. Yeah. Didn't they? You were able to get takeaway on in mm. November, but you couldn't go inside. Yeah. So I think yeah, probably October maybe. That's a long time.
4: It is a very long time. For somebody who
3: spends a lot of time in pubs, which I'm alleged to do.
4: Well, yeah, apparently you lived in a pub, yeah. you know, and, you uh. know, could be. Do
3: you know, I think Mark Dolan did. Did he, has he not told the story of how he uh, grew up in a pub?
4: No, did his he? His parents
3: owned a pub, I think so. I didn't know that. I think, I think, he, I think how I've heard you him tell. do know that? He's well, told I think that I've heard him say it, yeah, I think oh, so. Oh, Okay.
4: Unless we'll I'm ask him.
3: confusing him with somebody else. But I'm pretty sure that's him.
4: I've seen him around, so if he's here, um, yeah, I'll ask, ask him. Yeah, yeah, I'll pop out and ask him. Right. Anyway, moving on. Anyway, sorry. Um, listener Lucy wins a parry for the random text of the week.
3: Ah. Lucy sent me a picture of a duck for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know why that would have... Been. Maybe it was connected to Simon Calder. I guess so. Mm.
4: Maybe she was following Simon Calder and taking the pictures taking of... Taking pictures of the
3: ducks. Yeah. Amazing.
4: Yeah. Anyway, we love ducks thing has become clear afternoon presenter Ian Collins who maybe or maybe not will join us yes. in the next couple we're of weeks. we're hoping minutes. to see him soon we are hoping if you are listening, we'll in love five you minutes. <laughs> <laughs> this week he wins a perrier for the best answer to, to the generic how are you question
3: how are you bit of a good my week, next door neighbor shaved what's what <Pardon? laughs> your next door neighbor did what
1: They've they've shaved their dog. (laughs) Why? What
3: to say? What's wrong with it? (laughs) Oh, completely.
4: I was just trying to think
3: of completely (laughs) irrelevant things to say on the back of the garden That was a weird conversation. That was a
4: weird answer to a very normal question.
3: Yeah. I suppose it was, yeah. Because, I mean, people shave their dogs all the time if they've had some kind of operation. Yes. Because the vet does it. Yes. But the way he said it, it sounded yeah. like they'd shaved the whole dog. <laughs> I
4: just imagine, like, this because... bloke with a dog in the back garden just shaving yeah, it.
3: Yeah, right. Exactly. That's Which why I was no laughing. one wants to
4: see, frankly. That's
3: why I was laughing so much. He said he yeah. saw the dog the other day. Oh, yeah? And he's lost the old satellite head thing that he was wearing.
4: Oh, the little lamp thing. But it's still shaved. God oh, bless. Yeah. Well, it grow back. Yeah. And um, finally... This is thank you very much to early breakfast producer Phil Day for alerting alert me yes. to this one because I wouldn't have caught it live like as if I'm listening at 5am in the morning. Right. Earlier today, Daryl Jackson wins a Perry for delivering the news story of the week.
2: And Joe Wicks has apologised for accidentally breaking wind in front of thousands of viewers during one of his workouts. He says it was a mistake because he thought his live broadcast was yet to begin. He says it was
3: a mistake.
4: It's happened to... Well, I'm glad
3: it wasn't deliberate.
4: Well, yeah... <laughs> <laughs> <Get laughs> could be part gracious. of the workout yeah something revolutionary
3: oh. yeah people who do yoga tell me that can be a problem yeah mm.
4: well listen it's all about exercise isn't it sometimes these Apparently. things happen yeah but i guess was that the news that. yeah that was the news that, that was, was the news. uh the sky news bulletin I mean, that we take of a slow in the uh, day, uh, early mornings yeah
3: blimey yeah i mean didn't they know what's going on in america and the fact that we've got a pandemic going on that's news is it
4: I assume it was the end finally of the bulletin, Maybe. you know?
3: Mm.
4: I'm not sure. Yes. Um, anyway, so that's all for the Perrier Awards. Is that it? That's it, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's time to go, pretty much. Thank you very much. And will be next week.
1: The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio.